Welcome to Dolls of Our Lives, everyone. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And Allison, I'm reminded of times people have given me cards where they spell my name Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, as in oh. Merry Christmas, because this will be coming out on Christmas. Hello, happy Merry Christmas to all who celebrate. Yeah, it's been a really busy month, and we're so excited. I know that some of you were talking about American Girl gifts for other people, so I hope that if you did gift giving in the past few weeks, you got or gave something you wanted. Yeah. I mean, are you a Christmas person? Are you like one of the people who can't wait even in July for Christmas? Uh, That is no, that is definitely (laughs) not it. I I did splurge this year. I felt very moved to buy a Felicity surprise outfit, which is the beautiful blue dress. Oh, right. So I felt very moved. I bought that from a person on Mercari who was offering it at just like a very reasonable price and it felt like the right time. But no, generally I can't say that I'm not a person for whom like Christmas is magic so much. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I mean, it it changes, I guess, different times in your life, but I love like Mariah Carey's reemergence every year is like the queen of Christmas. That's fun in pop culture. But I don't know. I like um, watching Christmas movies, which we're going to talk about. And also I make a zine every year with Anna that we send out to friends and family. So we've been working on that. So that's fun. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's like kind of getting into like cozy mystery season for me. So that's what I associate it with. I like having some time off work around Christmas. Sometimes it can be a little stressful getting to all family places and seeing everybody. But, you know, it's a nice I like sort of the family oriented things like I make Italian cookies or like a family recipe and things like that. So that's kind of what lives in my imagination. But I know we both have certain Christmas movies, I think maybe that we like. Are there any that you rewatch every year? So White Christmas is our obligatory watch, which is getting more and more resistance from like intergenerational tension. But I think it's going to stay like I think it your nephews who are fighting it or what's going on? I think there's like a lot of dissension coming through different ranks. And my entire tack on this, and I have said this out loud at family functions, it doesn't matter, right? Like it actually doesn't matter what you think of it as a piece of art. Like we we will be watching it. Wow. So you're you're part of the group that's like, this is happening. I don't care what you feel about it. It's happening. So I love it. And I also feel as though like people who do a lot to make other magic at the holidays love it. And I think it's a very small sacrifice to give a few hours to something that they really love. That That's kind of where I'm at. It's sort of like, you know, when Mrs. Merriman like fell ill close to the holidays. If she had said like, all I want is to hear this one song on the family musical instrument, you would play it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we all would. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a weird, yeah. I think Christmas movies can be divisive. I know like my wife really loves Miracle on 34th street. That is not my favorite Christmas movie. I don't want to shade it. RIP to Natalie Wood and everyone involved in that movie. I'm also a white Christmas fan. And in fact, um, we both used to volunteer at an independent movie theater called Cine Studio at Trinity College. And this year, for the first time in my memory, they're playing White Christmas on the big screen. So I'm oh. actually going to go see it 
but they normally play It's a Wonderful Life, which I don't hate, but like, and I usually do go to that, but I love White Christmas. I'm a huge Rosemary Clooney fan and I'm just really excited. I've never seen it on a big screen before, but it's one of those movies too that I really think if you have, this is where like not having DVDs anymore, like we're losing something because there's a phenomenal director's commentary, but it's with Rosemary Clooney before she passed on the White Christmas DVD. And I wish streaming services would let you watch it with that. I do have to get my DVD player out sometimes. I made Anna watch it last year. It's so good because she's sort of like towards her final years and doesn't really care. So she's like telling you all this behind the scenes stuff. And I just miss like that, like the director commentary facet of pop culture, like getting some tea in real time behind the scenes. Like that was fun. I think that comes out. I think the difference now is like there were very rigid ways that we got celebrities commenting on their art and now it just kind of spills out everywhere but if you want to consistently and reliably find that kind of commentary i do think it's a lot harder now i also know that there are so many times where we wish like the artist had not spoken back to the art piece like there are certain (laughs) films such as love actually that i used to love i don't really watch anymore but if you're gonna show me emma thompson kneeling over and crying and sobbing as like the emotional climax of the film i'm gonna watch it i don't i don't care how it came to me i'm going to watch it but will i sit and watch that entire movie no to be honest yeah i don't know if that one's aged as well i really like the holiday still i'll probably watch that um i'm a huge kate winslet person i'll watch anything she's in but i just like even though it's kind of kitschy and whatever like the homes are aspirational in a nancy myers movie that all works for me. Like, I don't know how like basic that makes me, but all of that stuff works for me. I've in the past watched Christmas in Connecticut, which is another golden age of Hollywood movie. It's not as good, but it's good. I'm trying to think like Home Alone. I enjoy both of those. Um, I've never seen Die Hard. I know that's a Christmas movie. Never seen it. Have you seen Die Hard? I have not seen Die Hard. I have no okay. opinion as to whether it's a Christmas movie. I don't know. But I mean... I'm open to it, I guess. I've just never taken that on. I'm trying to think of some others, but that's about I all. think Molly McIntyre, right? I think her movie pulls. I think it has a lot of great, oh, okay. you know, Christmas movie energy. I think it has a lot to offer around the holiday time. If you had to be transported into somebody's surprise book, whose would you want to spend the most time in? Oh, my God. That's hard. I mean, I'll say Samantha only because I've never been rich and I would love to just vacation in that life just for like, I don't know, a couple days. What about you? I think Molly's has a lot of emotional resonance. Do I want to be there with the war not yet over? No, I don't Mm -mm. think I want to spend a ton of time there. I think Julie had a pretty rotten Christmas. That's not really doing a lot for me. Mm -mm. I think Josefina had a really kind of wonderful like winter holiday story, but I think it's got to be Felicity. I think it's got to be the governor's ball and kind of the wonder of like the pre-revolutionary war Christmas that she experiences. I think that would that would be the one. Okay, I would go if Mary Wiseman was there. To yeah, tell me, I think like, that's gossip fair. about Kelsey Grammer. Like I would do that. We don't know that she wasn't. That's fair. We don't know. We don't know what she's been up to, what kind of time travel she's engaged in. But yeah, I mean, any like, do you have like a favorite Christmas treat? Like I know Christmas is always like, or the holidays generally, it's like a time for special food, special desserts, anything on your list? 
I like the peanut butter kisses when there's a chocolate candy kiss on top of a peanut butter cookie. I think I like the abundance of things just being around. A lot of things are different now that I'm an adult because if I really want Reese's Pieces, I just go buy them. So Mm -hmm. I don't need kind of, I think holidays used to be my checkered flag to enjoy certain treats. And now I just wave that flag whenever I want to. You just let yourself have it. That's great. So that's That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really love the day after Christmas because that's when I stay home all day in my pajamas and like watch movies and stuff. And that feels very decadent to me. And it's a nice time. I just watch like mysteries or whatever. Um, so that's something I look forward to. I also love these Italian cookies my mom makes, which I agree as an adult, you can have whatever you want when you want it, which is both like a privilege and a curse. But Um, my mom makes these Italian cookies that have like orange juice and like vanilla. I'm not making them sound good, but they're really light and they're the kind of danger zone cookie where it's like, you can have 10 and be like, I'm good. Like I could have 10 more, but they make so many that she doesn't make them except for the holidays. So that's like the only time I get access to those bad boys. So that, that I'm looking forward to. But I mean, I, I think the big thing for me with Christmas is like, I don't care about gifts really. Mm. I will accept them, but I'm not like, you know, I think as a kid, you're much more like salivating over stuff and like making a list. Were you that kind of kid? Yeah, I think I was. My parents also saved letters I sent out and different things that I asked for over time. Yeah, I definitely had like a list of desired things. American Girl was often on that list, but not exclusively so. I remember certain gifts, like I got really excited when I got my first iPod. There were certain things that I was really looking forward to and then getting them. I think part of the pleasure, though, when you look back, when your life is busy, it's that you have the time to enjoy it right away. If your birthday is on a Tuesday and you get your presents, you know, Tuesday night after Girl Scouts, you don't have the time to enjoy things. I think when you have the time to actually sit and kind of like, bask in what you've been given or what you've been able to give other people, I think that makes it a lot better. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Well, I hope everyone who's listening, whether you celebrate or not, you can use this time off work for some R&R, you know, have some fun time, chill out. The world's a weird place and a scary place, but hopefully you're having some fun today. And thanks for letting us be a small part of it. You know, Allison, I love mysteries, and I was so thrilled that we got to read a Julie mystery. Are we ready to get into that? I'm very ready. So we read one of the Julie mysteries, of which there are several, and we chose the puzzle of the paper daughter because it came very highly recommended. And I want to give us a little summary of what that book is about. So this book is by Catherine Rice, and this is the 2010 summary of Puzzle of the Paper Daughter. Julie discovers a mysterious note written in Chinese. She brings it to her friend Ivy to translate and learns that the note once belonged to Ivy's grandmother from long ago when she was immigrating from China to San Francisco. The note promises great treasure, but it doesn't quite make sense. It's almost as if the writer was sending a secret message in code. Soon after the discovery of the note, Julie and Ivy's beloved dolls are stolen. Who would do such a thing and why? Seeking clues, Julie and Ivy search all over Chinatown and even visit the immigration station on Angel Island. Gradually, Julie realizes that in order to find the doll thief, she must figure out the real message hidden in the Chinese note. Damn. What did you make of this book? 
I'm very glad that it was recommended to us. Some of these mysteries are less mysteries and slightly confusing things for children hiding in plain sight. This book had layers. This book had multiple storylines. It was deep. It was affecting. It was like, I mean, in a way, like this could have been sold almost as like an adult mystery. Like this was very highly developed content to me. It was. And the author, Catherine Rice, she teaches creative writing. And she is also the author of the Ghost in the Dollhouse series, the Mysteries Through History series. And she has written Kit, Rebecca, and Julie Mysteries. So she comes to this very well prepared. I'm into that. I mean, you can tell that she really knows how to like break down a story beat by beat. Like we're introduced to Julie going to the Ivy's grandparents' Chinese restaurant and things sort of unfold from there. But I mean, it kind of kept you guessing, like even though it's a kid's mystery, it's sort of like it did have some suspense to it. I think that this book works on two levels. There is the mystery of who has committed the thievery, right? So something is stolen, but you are given a clue very early on that something both more meaningful and more worthwhile has also been stolen in the process of this doll going missing. And you're kind of spending time figuring out what's happened to someone that used to be in Ivy's grandmother's life. And you're also figuring out the layers behind what they would call um, like a, a paper son or paper daughter immigration, which is at the heart of this story. Yeah. So maybe we should give some background of sort of like some of the history that comes into play in this book. So one of the key elements, like if this was a clue board, one of the key pieces is the note that we mentioned in the summary. So Julie is spending part of her winter break, which some of you might be embarking on fairly soon. She's spending some of her winter break with dad, which means what? Dad is going to be super involved and spending all his time with his children or the alternative, which is pretty much immediately farming them out to a dinner with friends. A dinner with friends and and importantly, the mom has also like made her sort clothes that have come into glad rags. And that's where she finds some Chinese pajamas, which she's like, I'm going to keep these for me and like repurpose them or like upcycle them or whatever. And she finds a note right in like the jacket. Mm hmm. So she finds a note in the jacket and she takes it, like shows it to Ivy and Ivy can sort of loosely translate because she's going to Chinese school on Saturdays, which I had a friend growing up who had to go to Greek school on Saturdays and also similarly was like, what it feels un-American to go to school on Saturday. So respect Ivy for doing that. Um, and then they end up at the China. Dad is like picking them up and he takes them to the Chinese restaurant because why would he ever make them a home cooked meal? Not this man. No. I will also say later in the book, he Julie asked him to do something and he's like, mm, no can do, girl. Like, I'm going on a trip to England. And basically he's described as like lighting up with a smile. And to me, that's the happiest we've ever seen this man is him imagining his next work trip. Dad is CIA. I mean, that's obvious at this point. Who? Yeah. He's CIA, but like in an interesting twist, like incredibly not tuned in to his own personal life or his daughter's lives because, you know, he takes them to the restaurant and he kind of fades out for the rest of that scene. But there's a lot going on at this restaurant. Like it is hopping there. It's a birthday party, first of all, for I forget what that boy's name is. 
Part of what's going on at the restaurant is Julie becomes more and more aware of people of different circumstances throughout the different series. And one of the things that she's noticing, and this is a red herring, is a child named Carrie who's crying. And Carrie is crying and is upset at the Chinese food restaurant. And you learn that her mother has applied for a job. And when the dolls go missing for a short period of time, you're led to believe that she may have committed this crime. But I think the only crime she committed was like being out on a school night. Like it's actually not her fault. She just was upset and agitated. Yeah, she was upset. So there's like this girl who's upset in the restaurant. There's a group of like boys their age at a like birthday celebration for one of them. Their Ivy's Chinese language teacher is there. She becomes a person who comes under suspicion later. And then Ivy's grandparents. And so Julie at some point whips out this letter and Ivy's like, can somebody like check my translation? Like, can my teacher check my translation? And the teacher's like, you did a great job. Um, And then sort of, do we want to read what the letter says? Yeah. And we should say, because he comes back later, one of the boys who's the one who's noted as being really remarkable in the class, his name is Lonnie. And his first reaction to the note is that he's kind of suspicious and he basically says it doesn't make any sense. And that's going to be hugely important because it doesn't make sense on purpose. Yes. Yes. He, it's sort of a vague letter. Um, and it doesn't make sense on purpose. We can read it. Um, it's on my phone. Do you have it in front of you? I'm, do you have the page? I'm looking for it now. I thought I Well, I read it, it on Kindle, so let me look here. So Julie is talking with the teacher at the restaurant who is named Mrs. Chan, and Julie reads the translation out loud, which is what we are given. And I won't read all of it, but this is to give you a sense because it's meant to be a bit opaque and confusing. Bamboo does not grow in our village, but on hill to the west. Uncle Kim's nickname, Big Ears. House, four rooms, eight windows, separate kitchen. Bedrooms face south. Eight chickens, one rooster, four geese. Mother is housekeeper. Father is merchant. Lives in San Francisco. Best loved doll in the world is a gift from father. Keep her very safe on journey, for you cannot sleep without her. Grandmother raises rabbits. You make pets of them. Keep little duck to bring luck, but give Kai to father, that's the doll, when you arrive. She will bless you both with riches until we meet again. So what is happening in this letter? The context that we get is that Julie has the letter, Ivy translates it, shows it to the teacher, and then basically Ivy shows it to her grandmother who realizes instantly, she provides the most context because she realizes it's it's a letter to her. Correct. From her mother in China when she left to come, you know, meet up with her father who was already living in America. And so her mother was saying like you're traveling with this doll make sure you sleep with it and keep it absolutely safe and it will bring you much riches until we meet again and everyone's like how can this like cloth doll like a rag doll basically bring you riches and so like there's some discussion of this and they're like well like it wasn't a valuable doll so like that's why lani and others are like this doesn't make any sense Her teacher, Mrs. Chen, flags it right away as being a kind of source, right? When you're a historian, you know there's different kinds of sources. And she flags this as what she calls a coaching note. And so this is a note that was provided to Ivy's grandmother so that she would have answers when she went through her immigration process. 
And it's interesting that she kind of takes a step back in this conversation and says that there are things that her grandmother might like to tell her. And she says, in fact, I would dearly like to hear it myself. And I think what you're seeing there is now that 40 plus years have elapsed, this woman who's kind of only heard about this kind of document helping people through an immigration station like Angel Island, now she gets to see one and gets to see a family kind of parse out in real time the importance of that document. Yeah, and just to back up if folks aren't as familiar, like Angel Island was an island off of San Francisco that was used as an immigration station for between 1910 and 1940. And we find out later that grandma comes through in 1919. So she's there like, you know, nine years into this base. And essentially, this is after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which forbid a lot of immigration or all immigration from China and other Asian nations. So, you know, people who immigrated had to prove that they were already citizens or had like were the child of an existing citizen, which led to this phenomenon that's called like paper sons and daughters in which some United States citizens of Chinese descent who either lost children during childbirth or like invented children would then sell their baby's identity or like these fake identities um, and children would come over and assume those identities and be adopted into those families. Or you could, because of the San Francisco fire of 1906, which destroyed the city records, be like, I was a citizen. My records were destroyed in that fire conveniently. So I am a citizen. So there was like a lot. That's like kind of the context. But people could be detained at Angel Island for months at a time and were interrogated. So like Allison saying, they would come with coaching letters to coach them through these interrogations, which were often meant to like put you off or prove that you actually didn't know anything about the family that you're claiming to be a part of. What's amazing about Ivy's grandmother is she is meeting, right? The person she says she's meeting. She's not able to come with her mother because she's fallen very ill. And that would end up being a surprise to her father who's waiting for her to come over. And part of what is important There's the paper son phenomenon, and then this is about, you know, they call it the paper daughter. The paper is to give her a set of things to say about the village where they're from in case they're being questioned. What's really interesting, too, is you think about, like, footage that's leaked of courtrooms in recent years where Mm. judges are interrogating literal babies or toddlers or very, I shouldn't say interrogating, but they're questioning and there are children who have to speak for themselves in the immigration process today. Everything about this is completely legit, right? She is who she says she is. She is traveling with someone with a more complicated story and that's going to come back. But what you're seeing in this moment is a family kind of learning something new about their own immigration story. And you're right to point out in 1882, that's when the restrictions start. The restrictions had really just been upended in 1965. So Julie has always lived in a world where people like Ivy's grandmother would have an easier time immigrating And yet just two generations back, they have this very different experience. Right. So it's an interesting like intergenerational story, too, which is why like it's a really smart scene to have the teacher be like, I want to learn from you, too, like to Ivy's grandmother, because she maybe her personal history isn't like that of Ivy's grandmother. Um, So that's a really powerful scene, I thought, because you learn that 
the letter fell down into the seam of the jacket. So like, even though Ivy's grandmother's mother gave her this letter, which it ends up being actually like hugely important to the financial health of the family, the letter was never like recovered by Ivy's grandmother because it was like sewn or like fell down into the lining of the coat. And this is Chekhov's doll because this is a very heavy handed (laughs) hint that there's something very special about the doll. And an adult reads this, the fact that she's being told, like, don't let the doll out of your sight. Make sure you sleep with the doll. The doll will bring the family riches. We've also separately learned of a very high quality, very important jade necklace, right? That was worth a lot of money. So when you're reading this, there's not a ton of mystery and suspense there. You pretty quickly figure out that necklace is probably inside of the doll. I actually, the thing that tipped me off, did you ever see that movie Possession with Gwyneth Paltrow? I don't think so. Okay, you need to watch this movie. It will like blow your mind. It has, not really though. It has Gwyneth Paltrow as Jennifer Ely, who played Elizabeth Bennett in the 1995 version, who is a great actress. I don't know why she's not in more stuff. Anyway, It's a movie that flashes back and forth. It's like a cautionary tale about like letting historians into an archive because this guy like straight up steals a letter about this poet he's researching, a Victorian poet. And he's like, I think that he was had an affair and he's trying to prove this. And he ends up linking up with Gwyneth Paltrow, who's kind of in her British era at that point. She's like speaking with a British accent in interviews. She does play British in this movie. But basically it all culminates in going to a historic home and she's like, Dolly has a secret and keeps saying that. And it's like a line from a poem. And she's like, oh my God, the secrets in the dolls. And they like literally like pop a head off a doll. And there's like a hidden like written message by one of these Victorian poets inside the doll. So I was like, oh my God, what if it's inside the doll? Thank you, Gwyneth Paltrow. Do you think there was any pressure on this author to make the doll central? Probably, yeah. I mean, but it's interesting because it's like a hand, it's like a rag doll. So it's not, you know, one of the dolls that Julie receives as a gift from Ivy or Ivy's doll. No, but a lot of this book is about Julie and Ivy in hot pursuit of their special dolls, right? And I think part of what you are supposed to sort of track across the book, there are dolls that have value because people have, you know, smuggled jewelry into them. And there are dolls that have value because you love them. That's right. She does. The grandmother has, sorry, someone has actually kept the doll for a very long period of time. And we'll get back to that. But this has a lot of interesting scenes that we were kind of calling for in talking about other books where we spend a lot of time in Ivy's world. Yeah, I think what was interesting is like, so we get this really powerful scene where the grandmother is reliving this really traumatic event of like coming through Angel Island and she's with another friend that she's made who is going on to actually be a paper daughter. Like she is going to be adopted by a family in California as their own daughter. And so she has to go through like a more rigorous process because unlike grandma who just has to answer truthfully questions about her own family, which is stressful enough, this girl has to like kind of go with a family history that is not her own. And we learn grandma has like given her this doll as like a good luck charm. And so she has to go, and this is uh, Popo recalling that she had to pretend that these friends were her parents, otherwise the immigration officials would not allow her into the country. That was the law. Only family members of American citizens could immigrate to the United States. And I think what's kind of striking about this book, right, thinking about it coming out in 2010, 
immigration was such a lightning rod issue for basically the entire Obama administrations, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about how frequently that was on the front page of the news. And I think what this book is showing is there's all these areas of gray, even within a family and a network of what people chose to do to survive, right? To make sure that their family stood a chance. And there's really not judgment, right? And again, it's so fascinating that the teacher says, well, let your grandparents kind of take the lead on telling this story because she probably knew in that moment, this could be information that blows up this family's sense of each other. And it's not in the case of the grandmother, but she's one degree of separation away. Yeah. And I think what's like a major credit to the author is like, if you compare this to like historical accounts, this is very in keeping with a lot of people's real family histories, which is like, often people didn't know the history that their grandparents went through on Angel Island because there was so much like trauma around it that it was just shrouded in silence. Also, as you're saying, like having to perform like in some cases, like that you're a member of a family that you're not to get your citizenship status, like that might also influence you to stay silent. But I want to give a major shout out to the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation website, which has some really awesome digital exhibits that you can explore. One is called the Lighting the Darkness exhibit, um, which has a tribute to folks who have come through this immigration station. And then there's another that kind of uses the lens of food to explore different people's experiences. So an interesting point that the author doesn't make in this book, but was worth noting, grandma at one point says like the food was terrible and like they own a restaurant. Obviously, like food is a major way that they're in touch with their own culture. And I learned in this exhibit that like if you came from a European country, you were dining in a completely different dining room at Angel Island than you were if you came from an Asian country with and those tables had tablecloths. The Asian immigrants got no, no tablecloths, worse food. But I read a, a really interesting account of a man named Wing Ding Lu who said that he came through and like grandma in this book had to be interrogated about being about meeting up with his father. So he didn't have to lie. He wasn't a paper son, but he was still being like hugely interrogated and he was so scared. And ultimately he believed he was there for nine months and his father was in San Francisco waiting and sending him food on Angel Island. And the only reason the judge let him through was because the father couldn't prove that this boy was his son. Hmm. And then like kind of in desperation, he was like, we have the same weird thumb. This is a family thumb. Like, it's ugly, it's weird. And the judge was like, works for me. Yeah, you do all have this, like, weird, quote, fat, ugly, identical, and key to America, quote, thumb. And it's just kind of crazy even thinking about how strict the system was that the proof that this real father-son used to stay united was not something that the government instilled or enshrined in laws. It was, like, this kind of, like, folk exchange And yet, like everyone going through this system, including grandma in the book, is probably so scared because of what they knew of the laws. And yet it's like it's such a fluid system, even as it's so strict. You can also find if you're doing research on specific people, there are cases where you stumble across a fairly voluminous file for people who were detained at centers such as these. And part of the reason for that is a lot of that documentation has been kept. And so there's like pretty good numbers of digitized documents for people who came through these kinds of experiences. So if your family came through an immigration station or they passed through a place like Ellis Island, 
if they were above a certain class, they wouldn't have done a medical inspection. You could have been oozing mm. out your eyeball. They're passing people through. But there are these instances where there's these really thick files on people because it's a really intrusive examination. And something we haven't said so far, Erica Lee wrote America for Americans. She wrote and co-authored one of the definitive books on Angel Island. And part of what she and other immigration scholars have done a really good job of doing is showing not only how subjective all of this is um, and how fluid it is, how much it changes over time, but these records kind of betray themselves, right? When you start mm. to look at them, it all really does unravel. And there's a passing mention in here that's real. You can find it on the Angel Island website. And I think it's presented in sort of a folksy way that there wasn't going to be a park there. And then someone happened to notice that there were poems written by the people who mm. had been detained there. So they decided to make it a park. I'm sure there is much more to the process of it becoming a state park. But the fact that people were always making their own sources as well, like they're talking back to these sources that are being made of them, which are questioning things like, are they amoral people? Are the women coming to do sex work? There's all these assumptions that go into it. And then you're seeing like, these were just kids. They're just two girls, one of whom thinks she lost this note forever, that it blew away while she was getting off the ship. Yeah, in so many cases, there's so many instances of children being sent off by their mothers alone to meet with their fathers who have come ahead and it's just, I mean, it's so tragic. It's just like the grandmother's story in the book where like either the mother in China is someone they'll never see again, or in the case of the person I just spoke about, his father died of cancer three years after he arrived. And so he was put into like the, an orphanage essentially, and then worked his way up in a, a Chinese restaurant where he could, where he could work with having not gone to school. But one of the poems that I thought was really moving that's recorded in one of the buildings, a portion of it says, um, from now on, I am departing far from this building. All of my fellow villagers are rejoicing with me. Don't say that everything within is Western styled. Even if it is built of jade, it has turned into a cage. So a lot of the poems are just really haunting images of being imprisoned, which is essentially what was happening. I mean, folks were put in bunks with, you know, many people to a room, not really much activity going on and very restricted and, you know, end up turning to the walls of the rooms themselves to kind of like express some of their experience. But it's it's hugely tragic. When her grandmother recalls that experience, we're kind of in the moment with them. The girls were shown to the barracks. The dormitory was a crowded room lined with metal bunk beds three tiers high. Women and children sat on the beds or huddled together playing cards and talking. The room was warm from all the bodies, too warm. She longed to throw open those locked windows to let in the fresh air. I think what's amazing when you hear these stories is that if people weren't sick already, right, the odds of right. them becoming sick from not just having been detained on a ship for their whole journey, but now they're stuck together in these really tight quarters. It's kind of this amazing story that Ivy's grandmother is choosing to share with them. And what really struck me about this book that I think was probably very hard to do I never felt the whiplash I thought I was going to get from these really somber scenes to these girls sol solving a mystery. Like, I thought that would yeah. come across as very silly, 
But the mystery really at the heart of it is they want to know what happened to their grandmother's friend. Like they want to know what's happened to both of their dolls and why they've gone missing. And they suspect it has something to do with them reading and translating this note at the birthday party. But it's never goofy. Like this book actually strikes a really sophisticated tone. Yeah. And even the mystery itself, I think, has a through line with the grandparents story of like, what does it mean to like try to make it in America and like the privations of that and sort of like the stress and the struggle of it? Because ultimately, I mean, we'll get into who took it and why, but I mean, it's a similar impulse to take this doll and try to improve the life of your family as it was to maybe leave China and try to come to, you know, a completely unknown place to try to have a better life. So, I mean, it's a it's a really, I think, poetic arc in a way. So it does keep it from being totally goofy. But I think it's kind of refreshing or just nice to have like nine year olds like walking through their thought process of how to solve this. It doesn't have levity per se, but I think it tempers like the trauma that you kind of can imagine of the grandparents remembering these experiences. Like, I mean, it is scary when after grandma talks about the note and everything, they go upstairs because the grandparents live above the restaurant and it's like someone has broken into their apartment. And that to me was like kind of scary. Like that's my like one of my worst nightmares. Like I hate that thought. And it's like someone has clearly gone through their stuff and like amazingly grandpa is like everybody go back outside because he's afraid that the intruder is still in the apartment he's calling the police and then julie like refuses to go outside with everyone else yeah and part of what's happening is now they're suddenly suspicious of all the people who've been dining at the restaurant that's why we kind of get the whole side note about lonnie who was at the party it's why we're focused on the teacher it's why we're focused on the young woman and her mother who was applying for a job and if you think back to the conversation we had about the telegraph club book right? Thinking about Mm -hmm. like, that's just not too far in the past from where we are in this story. Like we've kind of been reading around that time period. And the truth is there probably would have been a lot of skepticism about how much help the police are going to give them. Yeah, I think rightfully so. It's interesting to kind of see like the respectability politics in this book, because the next day, they find so like their two dolls were taken ivy's and julie's and nothing else was taken and the next day they're like we're gonna go out and try to find our dolls and they find one in like the trash from the restaurant and it's like all covered in garbage and then they eventually find the other one behind the tea room but it's interesting they set out to like interview all of these people who represent different facets of chinese culture in san francisco like you do get kind of a map of chinatown of like the teacher of the Chinese language school, like the person who owns the tea room, who's of like grandpa and grandma's vintage, who, you know, wants to be respectable. And then there's a man on a motorbike who has a ponytail, like a younger man. And the ponytail feels like it's supposed to be meaningful. It does. And the cop, you know, gets right to the point when he says, are your dolls valuable? And Julie kind of does a mental inventory and we get a nice description. And Ivy kind of bursts out, Li Ming is valuable to me. And the officers kind of laugh at them. It says they smile, but they're kind of smirking at them. And Julie says that her doll is valuable too. And I kind of loved this. Um, But why? Who would want two dolls? She's like, she's asking the existential question that this brand usually doesn't even want to look at. 
but they say they're valuable to me, right? Like these things are very special to us. And they're like, we will, as in every American girl fashion, like they are going to marry Kate and Ashley this. Like they know the cops aren't doing anything about this. They're not delusional. They're basically like, we will do some restorative justice, some community care. Like we're taking this on ourselves and not restorative justice, but it's more like their detective work. Like we'll solve any time before dinner. We'll solve any crime before dinner time. Like they're ready to do it. And I actually think their methods are quite good. Yeah. So what is the actual mystery that they set out to solve from that point? Like as you as you read it in the book, because this takes a lot of different turns. It takes a lot of different turns because initially they're like, we need to find our dolls because that's the only thing they think are missing. Then they find them in the trash and they're like, okay. Then they pivot to like, we want to find our grandma's friend because her grandma was like, wow, I never saw this friend. I haven't seen this friend in years. And she sent me a Christmas card, but that's like the last trace of her that I have. So I think from the moment they found their dolls, the mystery becomes how can we find this person? Because I think what they're scared of is grandma has said that she gave her doll to the friend. And Julie is, is depicted as the person who figures out there must be something hidden in that doll and this person won't stop until they find grandma's friend and that doll and take whatever treasure is inside. So like they, we, they're they like, we're going to be putting ourselves between our, that person and grandma's friend and that doll. There is one more plot line that I felt was entirely unnecessary and I'm not sure why it happened, which was we learned that mom's friend is going through a crisis. I knew you were going to say that. Yep. Her name is Olivia Kaminsky, and we learned <laughs> that she's coming to stay. And what I think is, like, actually sincerely one of the more forced aspects of the book that just didn't need to happen, it dawns on Julie that she is upset that mom's friend Olivia is coming to stay in their, frankly, too small apartment. Like, they right. don't have the space for this. Like, dad got we the good house. Yeah. Mom lives above Glad Rags, just like Ivy's family grandparents live above Happy Panda. And she's very upset because now she's going to have to share a bedroom with Tracy. I'm with Julie on this one. But a very forced parallel is then drawn in the narrative between the arrival of mom's friend who's choosing to like shake it up midlife and a paper daughter. I'm shaking my head right now, Allison. This is this should not have happened. We did not need this plot line. Like we just didn't. I'm sorry. And the forced parallel of like midlife crisis, white woman having a midlife crisis from the Midwest, which I'm not diminishing. I think that's real. To like Asian Americans or Asian people who are literally having their rights stripped away and having to be interrogated and argue for their personhood at, at Angel Island, not the same. And I'm sorry, but if we were going to get another plot line, could we not have delved deeper into the Valentine's Day disco that Tracy's involved in? That was put at the end of the book. That was kept very short. I feel like we were teased with intrigue about the older sister's love life. And then that has been ripped cruelly away from us. Yeah, I agree. Or could we not have Olivia be like, look, I've been doing some like in like internal work. It turns out like I've left my husband. I think that, you know, maybe that's not the life for me. And I've come to San Francisco in 1977. Hint, hint, hint. And like, Tracy, do you want to invite me to your disco? And like, maybe you can introduce me to some people. And like, I'm starting fresh, like new experiences, new identities. Like that would have been really cool. Even if we had to keep Olivia, that's what how I would have done it. 
Here's something that this book made me realize. The entire time that I've been picturing mom and the sisters at Glad Rags, I've been picturing them going through retro clothes, which to me is 70s and 80s clothes. (laughs) And it just occurred to me to circle back to our previous episode A lot of what would have been secondhand in their store would have been clothes from Kit and Melody's era. Correct. 50s clothes. So that had never actually like burst through for me until now. And that actually made mom more interesting for me, except for the fact that mom wants her daughters to sympathize with the friend. Mom got the lesser deal in the divorce. She's living above the store. All of that is fine. It seems like the girls have valid gripes with Olivia and they're kind of being sideswiped. And I was like, we don't need to make this comparison. It's okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about like mom and Barbara Streisand being people who appreciate fashion from like 1910 or whatever would be at Glad Rags because Barbara is like showing up on stage and in movies in this period, like wearing stuff she's getting from places like Glad Rags. So I'm like, wow, maybe they would be friends. But it is a weird pivot. And I'm just going to say, like, I think it's really strange that we're in 1977. We've been in these books now. Like, this is like basically book seven in San Francisco. We have not met one gay person. I'm sorry. What are we doing? But like, and now we're at a disco and there's no gay people? Like, I also feel like mom is an ally. Yeah, mom's an ally for sure. But like, where are the people in Glad Rags who are like, hey, girl, like coming in because they want like some fierce outfit? to wear to a show or like to wear to the disco, like whatever. Like, I'm just, you know. I thought that's where we were going with Olivia, but I don't think that's where they were going with that character. I guess not. I mean, I just feel like Lady Gaga and that migraine medication ad and I'm confused, you know, I'm stressed. I mean, she's thriving other than the migraines, but she's had a tough medical journey. She has. I wish she would just put out a jazz album, just do it. Um, But anyway, circling back to this book, I loved going on the path of them solving this mystery because it actually in a really beautiful way, like elides the line between what it means to be a detective and what it means to be a historian. And I thought that was cool. So like when we get on to the mystery is we're going to find grandma's friend, then we get on a cool journey where like they're discovering history and also trying to like almost in a minority report way, like solve a future crime. Like, you know, we must prevent grandma's doll from being stolen and her friend from being harmed. So we're on a race against time to like learn about history. That's basically the plot of this book. They go on a tour, which we absolutely love. We love to see that. that. And honestly, the only person who wants to go through with this journey, right? We learn that planning the disco Valentine's party is consuming all of Tracy's time. And so Ivy's grandma, once again, steps up like she's a small business owner. She's a hustler. She is, you know, a A multi-generational caretaker. Yeah. She's like, I'll take them. And so we get this kind of moment where they're listening to the tour. And this must have been so surreal for her grandmother, right, to have this experience and to have it kind of narrated back to them. And they're talking about this person they'd spoken with, Mr. Long, who told them all about different experiences And the ranger says, today the poems remind us that this place was an important part of Chinese American history. After the poems were discovered, people formed a committee to save the immigration buildings. One day we hope to turn them into a museum. So Julie's on the ground level of this. She's not visiting the kind of place that you would be at today, which I think speaks even more to grandma's courage because she's willing to go. 
and like put herself yes. back in that headspace for the sake of her granddaughter's education and the possibility that she could see her friend again. Like all we know about this friend is that she was probably married and had a son named Robert. Like that's what we're working that's on. That's it. And they're and they learn that through like a brave microfilm adventure. Like they take themselves to the library and are like, we're doing this. There's a really interesting line which mentions that the librarian has an afro, which like that is noted, but not mm-hmm. that he is black, right? It, it's kind of this like passing reference that this librarian has a full afro and is assisting them with the microfilm. And I think of all the characters we've come across, like Julie is probably the most cosmopolitan in that aside from Rebecca, she just interacts with people who are different from her all the time. Right, right. I guess it's like city girl life, you know, she's just more, she's immersed in a more diverse community. And I think I like that the books reflect that. And I also just like that that guy takes them really seriously. He's not like, oh, you're just a bunch of kids. Like, what are you doing here? And he sets them up and he teaches them how to use microfilm. And and basically they're like, all we know is this woman's name is whatever it is. What's her name? First name? Oh, May. Sorry. Okay. Her name is May. She marries a man named Robert. And that's all they really know. And so he's like, okay, like get into like marriage announcements. And so they start guesstimating what years they start going through it. And it's like, wow, they're doing like real historical research. Like that's very cool. And what they find out is that the friend ends up taking on the, as a paper daughter, her adopted family's last name. They find the marriage announcement. Then they find a birth announcement for their son. Then they're directed to phone books, which like RIP. I was going to say, they use a very special artifact called the phone book, and I want to do a reenactment of that scene. Okay. They're cold calling people. They're just trying to see if Brave. they can get the right person. So a deep voice that's distracted says, hello, Lou residence. Is this Mr. Lou, Mr. Robert Lou, or Mr. William? Who is this? Julie took a deep breath. I'd like to speak with May, uh, May Lou, I mean, if her name used to be May Mang or May Zan. What's this all about? Are you calling for Deanna? Like, every scene in this book goes on a little bit longer than it probably should. They straight up ask him if he's born in 1932, and he says, I was, but who wants to know and why? Julie hisses to Ivy, it's the baby. What baby? Is your mother still alive? And he laughs and says, alive and kicking. Wow. Like, these two, I would read more of them. Yes. I would read more of this. Like I They're enjoyed so fun. them doing this. And so they, they do actually repartee. get to meet him. And just in time. They do get to meet him, which shows, you know, for those of you who are afraid to like make phone calls, I'm a phone forward person, but like this is the magic that can happen. Like you could rock a number, you could get someone on the line. And the next thing you know, they're meeting you on a train with your grandma and they're going to take you to the long lost friend who's uh, sadly in a convalescent home recuperating. She broke her hip. She broke her hip, but... She had a break-in occur, and this is where, like, everything finally comes together. We learn that the doll that she had been given by her friend, Ivy's grandmother, all those years before, had been holding inside of it that beautiful necklace all this time. Yes, and what cracks the case is that they have to stop off at the friend's house before going to the convalescent home to see her to get some library books, which she is, doesn't want to have to owe any more late finds on, which is a highly relatable plot point to me. So 
They go into the house and immediately things are disturbed and they hear someone in the back of the house. And so her son is like, everybody go outside. There's been a break in, the person's still here. Again, Julie does not go outside with everyone. And I'm like, Julie, if an adult tells you it's not safe and tells you something to do to be safe, like maybe you should think about it is all I'm going to say. There's also a conversation again about like what could there possibly, what value could there possibly be, right, in this old rag doll. And Deanna, who's been leading a lot of this, says, funny you should ask, there is one old doll from China. I found the scene where they pull this doll out and Julie basically starts ripping at her seams to be sort of chilling. But I was also like, you know what? Like, go off. Like, you did solve the, the mystery. That solve was the like, crime. that was a fun moment when they're like in the convalescent home. And basically, Julie's like, oh, my God. Like, Ivy's like, tell everyone what, what you think was in the doll. And she says, like, I think the necklace was in there. Thinking it's been taken by all. She sees the perpetrator and she sees a flash of green. That's all she sees. She's like, I don't know, somebody took this doll. And then the friend is like, do you think I would leave my good luck charm at home? And the doll is with her. And everyone's like, oh, my God. And then they're basically, and this is where the book jumps out the window. They're like, Julie, you should be the one to tear into the doll because, like, you're the one who thought that the jade necklace would be inside. And I'm like, do we really, like, need the white girl to be the one who gets the privilege of, like, tearing into this doll? Like, having white people done enough to this family, but, like, whatever. So Julie tears into the seams and then we get a very lurid description of her reaching inside the doll like feeling around and she finds the necklace holding her breath she carefully snipped the stitches at the side of the doll's neck the old seam separated easily julie's fingers probed gently inside the doll just as they had probed inside the lining of the red quilted jacket like we didn't need that detail this is when she found the folded note like is this a tryout for gray's anatomy she felt a hard lump among the wads of cloth stuffing, and her fingers closed around it. Carefully, she tugged out a tightly wrapped ball of cotton, wadding, and handed it to Popo. This is when we start to see the green stones shining. They'd been there the whole time. No one has touched this for 50 years. I could never, like, I'm too, like, in, like intense with my dolls. Like, I would have felt this years ago. To quote Gwyneth Paltrow, Dolly has a secret. Dolly has a secret. I'm just going to say, like, what would have, I just thought in that scene, like, what if Julie put everybody through this? And then she's literally, like, elbow deep in this doll. And she's like, there's nothing in here. Like, what if the necklace had not been in this doll? And she's just destroyed a family heirloom. Like, every medical show that had someone with, like, a bomb inside of them. And the surgeons are like, if you move will all get destroyed. This is where, again, I just have to bring it up. This is like, we go from that amazing writing of her like ripping out the stone. We then have this like flashback where she's recalling Ivy's grandmother feeling unwelcomed. It was so hard to feel unwelcome as if we were intruders in a place we weren't wanted. In the middle of this, Julie starts crying about having to share her room and making her mom's friend no. feel bad. We I just refuse to deal with that plot Just line. take us that to was the insane. disco. Just what let is us the all name? go to the disco at the end and just be like, wow, after this crazy mystery, it's so nice to like let our hair down and like do the hustle, period. What's the name of the last chapter? Because it will stay with me forever. I don't remember, but like... This- book is sponsored by John Travolta and it's Uh-oh. called Dancers and Answers. That's the last chapter. Dancers and Answers. Beautiful. Honestly, 
we already got our answers. Just now we finally get to meet Olivia. And we learn that, like, things are going to be okay. I mean, it ends on a really awkward note where Julie's like, I guess everything's going to be fine. And, like, makes a welcome sign for this person because she's like, I had to imagine they were, like, someone coming to Angel Island. And it's like, Julie, can't stress this enough. That was not what this is like. No, not we what's also, happening here. We also learned that, like, we were wrong about Lonnie, right? Like, we learned that, like, we've all made some judgments, right? Like, there are things that we've all been wrong about. We've all been, um, yeah. I do think, like, a lot has been asked of Julie in terms of making accommodations. I think a lot has been asked of Julie, period. And, like, clearly she has not processed the divorce, even though, like, we're not talking about it. Like, this girl is still, like, going through it and has a lot of feelings where she's, like, I mean, essentially, imagine being a guest in someone's home and your host basically responds to you as if, like, you're entering a detention center or, like, how <laughs> she imagines you should be treated if you were unfairly being detained. Like, it, it's just, like, she's investing a lot into, like, the house guest experience, and I just am worried about the safety of Olivia and everyone in that home. Like, frankly, that's how I feel, but it's... It's a whole lot. It's a whole lot. And I think something and she's is... class president. Don't forget about that. <sighs> well, and she blew off that meeting. She was like, listen, because I'm the president, I can make this meeting as short as I want when they have like she realizes they have a school meeting the day they want to go see the grandma's friend. So she's like, LOL, this meeting is going to be 10 minutes if it's going to be anything because I have to get to the train. Julie confronts Lonnie on the second to last page. He's a boy who kind of drops in and out of the narrative. Honestly, like, don't invest a lot of energy. And basically, Lonnie says, like, I didn't steal anything. And Julie says, that's because you got caught. And he's like, you got me there. Well, basically, he's an idiot. Like, he's, my grandmother always used to say, a good liar has to have a great memory. And basically, (laughs) like, he doesn't. Because when he's talking about, Julie's like, you broke into, like, grandma's friend's house, May's house. Because he was like, the window, I didn't break in. And the son is like, well, I locked that door. And he's like, well, you didn't lock the window. And they're like, how did you know the window was unlocked? And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, ruh-roh. But it's an interesting parallel that is not explored and maybe it's just supposed to be like hanging out there that we learn one of the few details about him is that his father is out of work and his parents and his whole family are struggling economically. So he's like, I can't wait till I can get a job when I'm 16. And you see that he's like really nervous about family finances. So we're supposed to imply that that's why he was trying to steal the necklace to help his family. So it's kind of weird at the end when grandma's like, I'm going to sell this necklace anyway, because that's what my mom wanted. And I'm splitting the money with May. And like, that's what we're doing. And then I'm like, so I mean, Lonnie was wrong for breaking into everyone's homes, obviously. But it is sort of like rough, I guess, at the end to be like, and he's going to like maybe go to jail, question mark. You also, I think, something that this book did really well. I think that Megan McDonald, who gave us, like, Julie Cannon, is pro-Carter. I suspect that this author is anti-Carter because there's all these, like, little hints where it's, like, people are starting to be more careful about where they drive. The unemployment is starting to get out of control. And something I liked about the character of Lonnie is... The grandmother had kind of critiqued this idea that they called California like the golden mountain. And obviously the streets are not paved with cold with gold, but they're quite comfortable, right? Like they own a Mm -hmm. thriving business, like other people in their family own dry cleaning. They do very well. And both Lonnie and Carrie and her mother, like they're not doing well. They're really starting to struggle. And I think that was kind of a smart thing to include in this book. 
Julia is not, Julie is not thrilled about Olivia, but says so many people arrive as unwelcome intruders, but end up somehow belonging. I was like, I'm not sure that, like, that's on the Statue of Liberty. Like, to quote Cher Horowitz, there's no RSVP, but that's her lesson. I mean, it's like, and does Lonnie feel like they belong? Because basically Lonnie, like, radicalizes Julie for, like, approximately five minutes when he's like, yeah, Angel Island, like, so much for the American (laughs) dream. And Julie's like, he's got a point. And then, like, at the end, she's like, it's beautiful. Everyone belongs. As, like, Lonnie has to go to jail. And it's like, this is, it's a lot. There is a line in the book where someone directly compares Angel Island to Alcatraz. And that would, you know, be something else that Julie would have had like a fair amount of experience knowing about as a prison. So yeah, I'm with you. I think that like her interactions with Lonnie, like we went from anti-carceral state, no detention Julie to like lock him up. (laughs) She's like, Governor Reagan has a lot of great points. And we're like, Julie, no. And she's like, you steal a doll. You steal a You're doll, done. you go to jail. That's it. And we're like, oh my God, Julie, why? What happened to you? Lonnie happened. Lonnie happened. Oh my God. Like, where's Lonnie today? That's what I want to know. I hope Dancers he's okay. and answers. That's what that chapter Dancers and was answers. about. That's all we're Not left with. Not the answers you wanted, but the answers you needed. We found out what happened to the precious stones. Like, grandma is going to be doing even better. I totally agree with you. Angel Island has amazing resources online. I'll also Mm -hmm. just say Yosemite National Park has done an amazing job talking about the important role that Chinese immigrants played in creating that park. And I highly Mm. recommend they do a lot of digital series online. They do a lot of virtual education and they talk about the very long relationship between Chinese immigrants and Chinese migrants and just enjoying the park, but also creating the park. And I think that's, you know, a story that's super important that people not just see, you know, the tourist side, but also see like these are the people who literally made that part possible. And that's also true at Angel Island, like their choice to leave behind a record of themselves is why that park exists, which is super cool. It is very cool. Yeah. So please check out both of those sites. We can link to them in the episode notes. Allison, where can people find you in the show if they want to ask questions or offer their own theories of the crime? I'll be rereading this book for the next 10 years to try to catch all the nuances. Other than that, you can find me at Allison Horrocks on all the platforms. I'm very easy to find on Instagram. And Mary, where should people find you? Please find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Feel free to share your favorite disco, pop culture moments, songs, etc. I wanted more disco in this book, but that's okay. I will settle for this beautiful book that we received. And, you know, we're going to keep rolling um, with the show. I don't know where we're going. Where are we going next, Allison? The next Julie content that we are covering is we are watching the mini feature and the tiara goes to, which is about Julie. And we'll be talking more about Title IX and basketball by reading Hoops by Matt Tavares. Wonderful. I can't wait for more basketball content. So if you want to read along with us, check out that book and we will see you on our next episode. The hustle was with us the whole time.